Mac Power Users, episode 223, Mac Power Users Live on November 1, 2014. everyone, it's David Sparks, along with my pal, Katie Floyd. How are you, Katie Floyd? Hey, David, I'm well. How are you? It's the first Saturday of the month, and that means it's Mac Power Users Live Day. I love Mac Power Users Live Day. It makes I, me so happy. Yeah, this is early. This is about as early as Mac Power Users Live can get. I, I was thinking, oh, we, we got another week before the live show, and uh, no, we do not. Here it is today on November 1st, so yeah, but that's I, good. I, I really like it. It's fun getting up early on Saturday and, you know, kind of catching up with the feedback. One of the things we like about the show is we get to catch up with all the great feedback we've had in the last month. But we also get to bring in usually kind of what we call a mini guest, somebody who's got got something to talk about, but probably doesn't merit a whole hour and a half, but it's something we want to share with our audience anyway. And we have the perfect guest for you this month. It's Mike Rohde. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. This is the first time back to the show. Yeah, that's right. It's the first time I've ever been a mini guest before. That's awesome. Well, you know, <laughs> Mike was, uh, we did a whole show with Mike, show 120, about taking notes. And Mike is the guy behind sketchnoting, which is really kind of a remarkable way to take notes. It's something I still do every day, Mike. This, you know, sometimes things stick and sketchnoting has definitely stuck with me. So we did a whole, a whole show on it. And um, uh, since that time... Uh, I wanted to have you back just to talk about, you know, how we're using sketchnoting, how it's evolved a little bit. Mm-hmm. And also you've got a new book out all about sketchnoting. So uh, where do we start with this, Mike? Well, I guess we could start with the with the second book. Um, the first book, the Sketchnote Handbook, uh, came out in, can you believe it, almost two years ago, November 30th. Um, so it's been wow. out for a while. And uh, it, did, it did really well. It sold uh, quite a few copies and the publisher was happy and they wanted me to do another one. And I was interested in doing another one because I felt like there was more to be said. Uh, so we concocted this idea to do something a little more active in a sense of having challenges and making more of a workbook because we, f- we kept getting requests from people uh, to have more activities to do. So we, we took all that feedback in. And we made a new book called the Sketchnote Workbook. And the idea behind it is to take the idea of sketchnoting and expand it in a bunch of different ways um, that you can use in your life. So the first book really focused on what is sketchnoting, what makes it up, uh, why would you want to do it, what are the components of it, what are some techniques that you can use, lots of samples of other people's work, uh, and then um, activities in the back like um, different uh, worksheets you could do. Uh, And... And we focused a lot on the application of using sketchnoting in meetings. So everybody's got meetings uh, that they have to do and they want to get value out of it. Or they go to a conference and they may be paying a lot of money to a conference and paying for a hotel and a flight. And they want to get value out of it. And it seemed like a natural way to capture that value that you could use and then put in action in your life. So that was good. But there were a lot more ways that sketchnoting can be used that I was experimenting with. And I wanted to capture those in the book. So what we did is, uh, the focus on this new book is, um, it's broad. Um, and now I'll just give you sort of a list of the things we talk about. One is, um, idea generation. So people are coming up with ideas for work. They're trying to innovate and they need ways to think differently and use all the tools that they have available to them. So one of those things that I've found in my design practice for over 20 years is using sort of a sketchnoting technique to generate ideas and to map ideas. So I can see my thinking, 
on the paper. Um, and then the next thing was, uh, uh, Mike, yeah, go let, ahead. Mike, let me just interrupt for one second. Sure, go ahead. I just got thinking, you know, there's, there's some people listening that probably aren't going to go back and listen to show 120. Okay. Shame on you. Uh, but we should probably start a little higher altitude and just talk about what sketch noting is in general, there we go. because that sounds good. Um, it, and and I'm going to start because I'm the person least qualified to explain it. So I'll go first. That's usually the way things work on the show. Good. Um, is So a lot of times you go into a room and you want to take notes and you start writing words on a piece of paper. And that's great. But Mike came up with the idea. Well, I'm sure other people have had the idea as well. But Mike really perfected this idea of of making little sketches and diagrams of what's going on. And it's it's a fascinating way to take notes in the sense that I feel like you internalize it a lot better. And as I'm going to explain at the end of this interview, it's also very easy to get quick access to that information later when you need it quickly. But so Mike, explain just a little bit in broad terms what you how you define sketch noting. That's a great that's a great question. Um, the way I describe sketch noting is I call it notes plus. So um, if you take handwritten notes now, all you're doing is adding visual elements to it. That's as simple as it is. And we've explored a variety of friends and I have explored different ways that we can add visuals. It can be anything from drawings, which you mentioned. It could also be typography or lettering. Um, it can be little icons that you repeat and use as a reference so you can draw meaning quickly out of your notes. Um, it can be dividers. It can be color if you want to use color. So there's a variety of visual things you can add to your notes. And I think the other big component of sketch noting is you're not trying to capture everything. Um, sort of the basis of why I started all this is I was really frustrated with the notes I was taking and I was like a court reporter or a stenographer. I was capturing everything and it was completely frustrating because I always felt like I was missing something and uh, I was just always ru you know, running to try and catch everything. And uh, this approach focused much more on thinking about what's valuable to me and being more of a decision maker during the process and only capturing the things that had value to me or that I thought could have value to me more of the things that resonated with me instead of everything. Yeah. Mike, one of the things we talked about in the, the last show is, you know, you are very clearly an, an artist and I, and I say that with a great deal of, of admiration because I, I am not, <laughs> um, I've got some ability in, in the graphic design world and using computers to manipulate things. But when it comes down to using my own hand with a pen or a pencil and a piece of paper or canvas or something like that, I, I mean, I'm, I'm still in the realm of stick figures and, and finger paint, but can someone like me be able to learn how to sketch note and get something out of that? And, and will your workbook kind of walk me through some of the basic concepts of, of how, even if my, my, my artistic skills are, are fairly basic, can I get something out of this? Yes, uh, definitely. And, and you could probably talk to David because I think he might categorize himself in a similar area. Um, you know, he's not a professional artist at all, but he does, uh, different drawings in there, you know, so the, the core of it is that you're focusing on ideas and not the art. So I think a lot of it is we look at drawing and we categorize it as artwork. And if it's not as good as uh, Michelangelo or Leonardo da Vinci or something like that, where they've had years and years and they've dedicated themselves to being artists, we really can't measure ourselves on that scale. Um, so, but if we go in the, a different direction, if we don't, uh, basically measure ourselves against that. Instead, we just measure ourselves against, is this an interesting idea and can I express it with what visual skills I do have? That sort of takes the pressure off and it puts it more in the realm of what ideas can I capture with really basic shapes? And so that 
is definitely something that both the handbook and the workbook talk about is building things with basic shapes like squares and triangles and circles and lines and looking at things as objects that are made up of these simple shapes instead of getting overwhelmed by the complexity of it. Uh, one of the things that we intentionally did in the workbook, too, um, is I sought people that were definitely not artists who are practicing this approach, uh, including kids. So there's uh, lots of kids work in here um, to show that you can still use the technique. It's really all about um, ideas. And if you can capture an idea with a drawing, even if it's a bad drawing, it helps you to get that on paper or you know, on, a, on an iPad or whatever, get that idea down physically and look at it and sort of look at your own thinking and then work through it. All right. So, um, Mike, you, you had one really terrible artist in the book. Um, and that guy was a lawyer and I couldn't Some believe guy named you David, put, I think. put it in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let me tell you how I'm using the sketch note technique. And I talked about a little bit when we did the last show, but it's, I've really developed it over the years since then. Um, so I have this thing in my day job. A lot of times I write motions, you know, lawyers write motions and you spend all this time writing these things and you're sitting in front of a word processor. And I do like to include graphics in them and whatnot. But then there comes the day where you go see um, the uh, gentleman or, or lady in the black robe who is going to be making a decision. And for years, I would make notes about what I wanted to say and important key key points I wanted to have in front of me, because you never know, you may stand up and just brain fart for some reason and not be able to remember the key case. And so I was doing it with these written notes for years, and it never worked for me because if I did brain fart, I'd look down and I'd just see a bunch of letters and the whole room would be looking at me and I wouldn't even know where to look to find what I needed. And when I saw the sketch noting thing, it just clicked for me. So now before I have every court appearance, I make a sketch note of my argument and I make big icons of, you know, books and gavels. And like, if it's a case about, you know, a punch press machine, I'll have a punch press or whatever, you know, it is about. And so when you look at my notes, I've got these big drawings and largely down the left margin. And I've got some words on the right margin with large typography and it completely fixed that problem for me. So now when I stand in front of the judge, I have one or two pages in front of me with big graphics. And it's always funny because opposing counsel's looking at it and they're thinking that I'm completely insane. Um, <laughs> but it's great because whatever I need, I can get quick access to and put it right up there. So uh, sketch noting has really solved the problem for me. I don't use it so much in meetings, mm -hmm. but using it for those things where I need to get quick access to the information. And also, I do believe that the process of drawing the cute little graphics and whatnot actually helped me internalize it better. So I don't even need it as much later. So it's really a great technique. I would recommend it. And now you had other types of people. And so, so I guess the short thing is, is Mike asked me to put one in the book and I labored over it. And you know, the thing is, I'm such a bad artist. At one point I just said, you know what, ship it. I just scanned it and sent it to you. Good. <laughs> and good. Uh, it's probably one of the ugliest in the book, but that's what it is. Um, at one point I would add to mine is I do it on paper. I don't do it on the iPad. Um, mm -hmm. and then I scan it, but I use good thick paper with a grid system on it. So it's, it, it gives me a little bit of help. Little structure. Well, that's good. I think um, you found a way to use it, and I don't think there's anyone that says you have to use it a certain way or another. It's really part of the book's uh, emphasis here was to give you, here's a ton of ideas. Let's see if one of these will stick with you. Um, you don't have to use every one of them, but there's lots of different directions, all the way from idea generation yeah. to planning and everything else. So. Yeah. so what were some of the others? So if people are listening, they may be interested in. 
Yeah. So um, we wanted to really uh, get kind of a variety. So uh, we had ideas, uh, generation and uh, mapping. Another was for planning. So if you uh, maybe you were going to go replant your garden, you could actually draw out some of the elements or draw the house and where you're going to plant things. Then you can take it along to the garden center and they maybe someone can advise you about what would be best to fit there or whatever. So it's a visual reminder. Um, another is documentation. So one of the things that we do is we do activities and a lot of times we have to hand off those activities to other people. Maybe it's our kids even. Um, and the idea was why couldn't we use drawings in the text that we use to describe? So it's a step-by-step process or maybe principles. Um, could we use visuals to emphasize that and make it a little bit more friendly? And just like yours, when you're using it to present, it provides a reference point, um, something you can look at. Oh, that's right. Um, one great example of this is my friend Mauro Toselli, who's an Italian guy, and he did something called the Pasta Handbook, which is a, a sketchnote document for documentation. And he he has these principles in a row, so you know, going vertically from top to bottom, and it explains like what are the principles for good pasta and how to do it. So it gives you sort of this overview with the visual, you know, drawings of the things you should look for, and it's pretty cool. So that's another uh, application, um, and then. I think another direction is experiences, and that's pretty broad. It can be um, travel experiences or maybe an experience having a great meal. Uh, those are two that I've used quite a bit. I like to do travelogue sketch notes when I go with my family, especially because I know that um, when I'm done, I've, I'll have a book of sketch notes that my kids can look over and they can remember that experience um, of what we did. And I'll typically, because we're so crazy, I'll take notes during the day, maybe in a little pad. And at the end of the day, when they're all in bed, I'll sit down and I'll actually write out what we did and I'll add drawings and things and make sort of a layout out of it. And then uh, capturing uh, capturing food experiences. So I went to Chez Panisse. I was fortunate to go there a couple of years ago and had my notebook along and just and sketched out the, the meal that we had afterwards. Took some pictures during the process. And uh, that's one of my favorite ones. So go ahead. Um, one of the things we were talking about is you said you've you've spent some time recently going around teaching the sketchnote style, um, talking to different people in different industries, and in particular, you've spent a lot of time uh, in in the healthcare field. So when you go out and you give one of these, I I don't know, talks, seminars, whatever it is, you workshops that you call them, you know, talking to people about sketchnote, you know, how do you kind of sit down and explain it to them in a couple of hours or a session or however long it is is you do to them? What are, what are the big things that you try to get across to them? to get started with sketchnoting? That's a great question. I, in fact, I was just I just got back from D.C. I went to Sibley Hospital, and I think we ended up teaching about 60 people in the, in the hospital of all different types of people in the staff. Uh, what I do is I have something called the Sketchnote Mini Workshop. I actually do it all on an iPad. I've got the presentation in, in Penultimate, and I plug in and put it on a, a projector. And I basically explain who I am. Um, what sketch notes are and how I came to them. And then I dive right into drawing techniques. So I start with um, showing the five basic shapes that I use, which is a square, triangle, circle, line, and a dot. And I sort of build some things on the iPad so people can watch it happening. And I sort of have an interactive discussion with them about how these elements can be used to do all kinds of things. And then I move into things like uh, lettering and separators and icons and how I use icons in sketchnoting when I've got to capture lots of detail. Sometimes I'll just use icons with the text to help me pull out actions afterwards. You really don't need to be a great artist to make this stuff work. And I'm living proof of that. So uh, I think you should check this stuff out if, if it's of any interest into you. I, I think it can change the way you take notes. And I'm, I'm really glad that you're out there uh, talking about this stuff, Mike, because it's, it's really useful. You know, the show's about 
uh, Macs and electronics and, you know, gadgets. But in a lot of ways, uh, Mike's thing about writing on a piece of paper still carries a lot of weight. And, and you can do it digitally, too. I know there's even some products coming out that allow you to take pretty good uh, notes on a piece of paper where it simultaneously appears on your iPad. So uh, it's pretty exciting. Uh, everybody go check it out. Sketchnote Workbook is Mike's new book. Uh, and I think you also have a website. Is, isn't it called, is it Sketchnoting? What's the website, Mike? So I've got a couple, um, roadesign.com sort of captures sort of my thinking and it's got links to the books. The other one that I'm doing with Mauro Toselli, who I mentioned before is sketchnotearmy.com. And what we do is we feature other people's work. We try to find people that try it for the first time. So you get all kinds of variety of work there. It can be very basic stuff to more artistic and anything in between, which we really like. We like that variety. And Mike is also the artist who'd made all the beautiful illustrations in my email field guide. And thank you for that, Mike. That was a lot of fun working together. And and I'm going to be having an update for that book come out pretty soon. So um, so everybody keep an eye out for that, too. Um, Mike, thanks so much. And congratulations on all your success in this great stuff you're doing. Thanks for coming on the show, too. Yeah. All right. Katie Floyd, I got a new computer. I want to hear all about it, but I think that may take a while because I I have to give you some grief about that. But so yeah. let's let's take a quick break before we dive into all of that and, and talk about uh, one of our first sponsors. You okay with that? When I, yeah, but when I pushed the buy button, I said one of the things, the negatives was Katie Floyd is going to give me grief about this. I, I hope you did because I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm ready. I'm armed and ready. Okay. So, but before we do, David, maybe you can learn a few things about that fancy new computer with our next sponsor, and that is lynda.com. And lynda.com is an easy and affordable way to help individuals learn. And I know you're a big user of lynda.com, David. And using lynda.com, you can instantly stream thousands of courses created by industry experts on any number of topics. If you want to learn about business, if you want to learn about bookkeeping, if you want to learn about organization, if you want to learn about getting things done. Remember, we just had um, David. David Allen on the show, and he's got a lynda.com tutorial on there. If you want to learn about software, maybe you want to learn about some of the Apple Pro apps. Maybe you want to learn about how to use Evernote more efficiently. Uh, maybe you want to learn about OmniFocus or any of those other types of apps. I'm sure that they've got courses on those things just for you. If you want to learn about web development, graphic design, you want to learn about Photoshop or InDesign or any of those pro tools, lynda.com is your place to start. And the way that they do it is Linda works directly with industry experts and software companies to provide you with timely training. And often Linda has new tutorials the same day that new releases or versions hit the market. So you are always up to speed. These courses are produced at the highest quality. They're not somebody's homemade video on YouTube. And they're broken into little bite-sized chunks so that you can learn at your own pace and learn from start to finish. Or just pop in and take a section and, and find a quick answer here or there. Um, they also include searchable transcripts, playlists, a certificate of course completion, which you could maybe publish to your LinkedIn profile, uh, use on your resume, give to your boss, wh whatever you want to do. Whether you're a beginner or an advanced, lynda.com has courses for all experience levels, uh, and you can even learn on the go with lynda.com with your iPhone, iPad, or even your Android phone. There's one low monthly price for $25 a month. You get unlimited access to over 100,000 video tutorials, and if you're a premium 
premium member with their annual plan, you can also download their courses to your iPhone or your iPad or your Android device to allow you to watch them offline. And premium plan members can also download project files to practice along with the instructor. So uh, we've worked out a great deal with lynda.com to provide you with a special offer to access all of their courses free for seven days to see if it's something that might interest you further. You can visit lynda.com, that's L-Y-N-D-A.com slash users to try lynda.com for free for seven days. Again, lynda.com slash users And thank you to Linda for supporting 5x5 and Mac Power users. So, David... Yes, Katie Floyd. A few things for you. You um, you said, in fact, you wrote you wrote a blog post to people with advice about how not to buy a Retina iMac. Yeah, I did. Do you remember that? I did. It was actually quite popular. It made its way around the interweb. Yes. Um. And okay, did you like read that blog post? I didn't follow it, but I right. actually wrote it. So. Right, right. <laughs> I just want to make sure that, you know, like someone didn't hack your website and, and post it up there. Because you were very specific, and now you've got a Retina IMAX sitting on your desk. So how exactly did that happen? Uh, it's um, Did did you go I, to a store and look at it? I went to a store and looked at it. I, I also, I think I mentioned last week, I, I looked at Jason Snell's review, which was very positive and and was pushing all my buttons yeah i am a big fan of the retina screens i know some people can't tell the difference other people can tell the difference but don't think it's a big deal i love these screens i can't help it i have a retina two-year-old retina macbook pro in fact you know i had a macbook a 20 i'm sorry i had a 27 inch imac sitting on my desk i think it's about five years old i'm not really sure I'd have to go look it up, but it's, it's pretty old, but it's, it's running fine. It's a, it's a good Mac. But two years ago when I got that retina, um, MacBook pro, I, I kind of stopped using the iMac because I, I just couldn't not use that retina screen. And so it got relegated to a corner of my desk. And then eventually my daughter took it over and I was fine using just the laptop. And then, you know, I read Jason's review and I'm like, and I had to go to the Apple store for something else. And I walked right past it. I thought, well, I shouldn't look at it. And then I stopped and I looked at it and then I ended up ordering one. So I mean, you- I'm weak. I don't, I don't have an excuse. I mean, they, if you're like, a, if, if you're a designer, I know that's a good computer for you. I don't, I'm not a designer. I just love these pixels. It's gorgeous. Yeah. You you even went so far as to tell me the episode before, right before you bought it, yeah, I know. that that you didn't even think that you were going to replace your iMac when it finally died because you had no use for an iMac. Yeah, well, I was getting by just fine with just my laptop, and I could still be getting by fine with just my laptop. This is a computer for which I created a use. Okay. I, I don't have any excuse. I And I went in and I looked, looked at it and I loved it. You get a discount if you're an iBook author. author. You know, in the iBooks author program, you get like a little bit of a discount. It's not huge, but then I went and I priced it out and and it's expensive, but I bought one anyway and I love it. And it looks you know, like iBooks author looks gorgeous on it. And I've got extra room with all these extra pixels and um. I don't sit at a, this computer all day. I go to, I have a job. I go to work. You don't carry so I don't get it from, from it. home to work? What? You, you don't pick it up and like carry it under your arm and cradle it and take it to the office uh, with you and bring it back? It'd be tempting. Man, it would be tempting. <laughs> it's so pretty. But uh, you know what? I, I just love it, Katie. I This is definitely one of those things. It's, uh, I love using it. it it's so choice. Yeah. So tell me I about the specs. I highly recommend it if you have the means. Yeah. Have you ever seen Ferris Bueller, Katie Floyd? 
I have seen Ferris Bueller. All right, good. Yeah. So what the specs, are, I, yeah. I bumped it up. I got the higher graphics card. Uh-huh. Of course I did. <laughs> See, all this judgment, Katie, I, I heard it in my voice as There's... I was pushing the buttons. I knew it was coming. Uh, but I, I got the, I figured, you know, it's Retina, so I'll get the better graphics card. And I did get the higher clock speed. Um, I got the 500 gigabyte SSD and I have it attached to a Drobo. So I've got plenty of storage and it's really fast and I love it. I just love this computer. So the 500 gigabyte SSD, that is an upgrade. Previously, did you have one of those hybrid drives or did you only have the 250 SSD, 256 Um, SSD? The one I had before was before hybrid drives existed. I had 256 before and that wasn't enough. Yeah. So are you thinking the 500? Uh, I'm kind of surprised you didn't go with the terabyte. Is the 500 going to be enough? I was out of money, you know, it, it gets <laughs> adding the terabyte added something like $600 to the price. Yeah. So I said 500 will work. I, I, I'm not going to store everything on it, you know, and, and I do use selective sync with some of my, you know, cloud services, but with that and a Drobo, I'm in good shape. So what are you, what are you specifically going to, to use this iMac for? Do you still have your old one? Has it just gotten relegated to one of the kids' rooms? I mean. Yeah, well, my, my daughter took over the, the other iMac a while back. So it's been gone for a while. It's in her room. My daughter has an iMac and an iPad and that's it. She's, she's good with that. But, um, so it's, you know, I use it for everything. I screencast, I write books on it. All the stuff I do at home at my desk now, I'm. Not taking the laptop out of the bag. So this is the new I, family iMac. No, it's not. It's really mine because we had the family iMac principal kind of left the 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 house when my youngest daughter got her own laptop. You know, we had a family iMac because I had a laptop, my wife had a laptop, and we had an iMac, and the kids shared this iMac as did my wife and I. But you know, when the kids start getting older, they start getting their own computers. They don't want to use the family iMac. Right. All right. So how how about the the speed? Are you? I know you were having a lot of trouble with iBooks Author. Yeah. Well, they they did a release an update to iBooks Author recently too. So that the problem I was having with iBooks Author was not related to competing speed. My my MacBook Pro is great, and uh, the problem is was related to iBooks Author in Yosemite, and they got an update out, so it's working better. But in terms of the speed, it's fine. Uh, online, you're reading some stuff about people saying, you know, when they go to swipe between screens or they try to swipe between the navigation views, that they're getting some delay. I'm not seeing it, but I know it's out there. As I understand it, that's a Yosemite bug. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a great computer. I don't know what to say. It's, it's, it's an iMac but it's got retina screen and it's gorgeous. Uh, one thing I did, I forgot, you know, with these new iMac bodies, there's no, there's no spinning drive in it. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of a problem. You know, I, I, I liked having the spinning drive in the iMac, but you know, it's not there anymore. So, so be it. Just, just from a size perspective, you know, you could store more stuff on it or. Uh, what do you mean? Uh, for having the spinning drive? Right. Oh, you mean the CD drive? Yeah, exactly. Okay, not not spinning physical disk card drive. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Well, I, I'll tell you, there is there is something to be said, and don't judge me, um, about having these computers with really no moving parts now. I um, I was driving, actually, I was driving back from, from Milo Fest last week. Had a great time, great turnout, so thank you to everybody who, who came to that. And was 
on the interstate and um, somebody pulled in front of me and then, I don't know, something happened. And long story short, I had to come to a very abrupt stop and everybody is okay. Everything is okay. But my um, computer was sitting in the passenger seat next to me. And when I came to an abrupt stop, it, you know, flew off the seat and, you know, flew kind of down into the, the, the floorboard down below. It was still in the bag, but it, it's still the bag pretty, pretty forcibly flew off the seat and, and flew into the floorboard. And I just thought, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, that's, that's not going to be good. Cause it, it hit with a pretty distinct, you know, thud when it, when it hit, you know, everything in my trunk was jostled out of place and, so forth and so on. But turns out it was, it was fine. And, you know, I think not having a lot of those spinning parts takes a a lot of the wear and tear factor out of it. Yeah. Well, I I have no excuse. This is a great computer, but it's awesome. And uh, I'll take all the grief from Katie Floyd. You can give me. Yeah. I love it. I well, love it. no, I'm 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 happy for you. I I would consider buying one if if my life wasn't so laptop centric right now. And I just I really I don't know. I, I've got that Mac Mini, and I I really can't justify having an iMac and a laptop. I I am thinking though. I am thinking about changing my setup a little bit. The uh, the Mac Mini that I use at the office got hit by a lightning strike, and it's now an old Core Two Duo. I'm I'm kind of thinking about taking the the Mac Mini that I I have at home and taking that to the office. And I'm really trying to decide whether I truly need a Mac Mini at home anymore. Um, but I could see myself one day having to get a, um, a, a you know, a, a desktop computer at home and either going as an iPad with my, as iPad only or, um, you know, with, with a very lightweight MacBook Air, you know, a, a small 11 inch or whatever the fabled 12 inches that's just not super powerful. Yeah. Well, that, I think that Retina laptop, a MacBook Air is coming. Oh, year, oh yeah. So. I'm I'm not buying anything until until whatever that is comes out. Yeah. So. Okay. Well that that's my story and I'm sticking to it. I like my new iMac, everybody. If you uh like I said, like Ferris says, it's choice. If you have the means, I highly recommend it. Let's talk about some academic workflow feedback. We heard from some listeners. How about Daniel? Yeah, the academic workflow we had with Alec was was very popular. We got a lot of great feedback about that. Um, and Daniel wrote in with uh, some tools that he uses. Um, I will tell you that Daniel does have a very heavy German accent, so that will come through. But I've got links to several blog posts that he mentions in the show note as well. So if you can't quite catch what he's saying. But uh, let's hear from Daniel. Hi, I love the episodes. Thank you very much. For example, Daylight was new for me. It's also a topic I'm interested in, and perhaps the following comments and tips might be useful. As for literature, I strongly recommend differentiating between one survey system for all the literature and one for the literature of actual read and are going to use, at least if you're like a digital scribble. I use Devin Sink for the former in papers, version 2, for the later. I have written a posting about uh, this, and you can find it in the show notes. Regarding storing information, the maybe useful later on type, how about using topic notebooks? Personally, I'm also a fan of Circus Pony's notebook, and I use it to store academic information. You can find a posting about this also in the show notes. You can also use the outline function very well to plan a text or even a thesis, and I've written a guest posting on another blog, and you should also find the link in the show notes. For working with Scrivener and multiple versions with multiple authors, I haven't tried it yet, but wouldn't the snapshot feature work? 
Simply do a snapshot prior to editing the text and the other author can compare what was changed. If you also change the status, that would make it easier to find where changes happened. As for books, there is a way to get some digital, also it's quite beautiful, and you should probably have a look at the posting if you're not that attached to books as a concept. I don't know, perhaps these comments are helpful for listeners, uh, but in any case, thank you very much for the episode, and greetings from Germany, and thank you again. I love hearing from all of our listeners around the world. It makes makes me want to go on just a round-the-world trip. Yeah. Meet, meet and, them all. You know, the nice thing is, because in my day job, and you as well, we deal with just a few people, and we, we do help people as lawyers, but we don't have a reach, you know? And when you hear that someone in Germany is getting something of benefit from something you're doing at your house on your computer, it really is refreshing. It's, it's nice to hear from that. So, and, and Daniel had some great ideas. There are a lot of smart people out there, obviously, uh, teaching in academia and they, a lot of them have our geeks too. So we got some other great feedback too. Um, uh, Tudor wrote about the expense of Macs versus PC, you know, Alec had talked about it, you know, the problem of the return on investment. And, uh, he had written in to say, you know, it's also the case that the hardware terms is they work out cheaper in his experience. Um, and within his wife's payroll company, they found that Dell's last about a year before they're useless, whereas the Macs last at least three times that. So they pay their way in that way alone. And there is, of course, the initial outlay. Uh, his wife and him went uh, to get away from the present attitude in some company IT departments that run cheap nickel and dime where you can. And I really think that's true. I mean, just even that iMac we were talking about earlier, I've lost track of how old it is. It's definitely out of Apple Care. It's probably a couple of years out of Apple Care, and it's working just fine. My daughter, who's a college freshman, is getting by great with it, and she loves it. So uh, there's something to be said for that. Uh, hopefully, Apple right. can keep up those quality standards. Yeah. And, you know, again, that, that Mac Mini that I have in the office is still a great machine. It's it's a 2007, 2008, I think. It's, it's, it runs Yosemite, but not by much. But it is still, uh, it's, it's a little slow, but I've put an SSD in it and I've, I've upped the RAM in it. And it is one of, if not the most reliable machines that we have in our office. It's also the only Mac. You know, we buy pretty much, you know, $700 to $800 uh, Dell workstations in our office. And, they're starting to show their age after 18 months or so. And we, we typically replace them every, every three years. When people and, around me, yeah, you, know, you know, when people around me want to buy a new computer, I don't try to be that guy that's just saying you have to get a Mac because then you take ownership for that person. And then you have to deal with whatever problems they have. And oh. I, I just don't want to be that guy, but I, I do tell people I, I prefer the Mac, you know, get what you want. And, my wife is more aggressive than I am with her friends because her friends always need a new computer and she tells them to buy a Mac. Then they buy like a $400 something. And then like, they, cause they tell her it's too expensive. Then a year later they need to buy another new computer because the, the last one broke. And so she keeps track and she tells them, yeah, I told you for the last three computers to buy a Mac. Yeah. Uh, we also heard from David about the app we've talked about, I think before on Mac power users called voice dream. And David said, I just started a master's program and there's a lot of reading involved. Um, I feel your pain there. Uh, fortunately, uh, most of it is available as PDF with text and voice dream. And he notes that there is a light version that is free to try 
can pull text from many sources. You can increase the reading speed and even get other voices. And VoiceStream is an app that, that I actually own. I think I bought it at your recommendation, David, from one of our iOS pick shows. And I used it quite a bit. Now, I will admit that I did not know that this was a feature that you would read from your own PDFs. I used it primarily to read from my own cues, from my Instapaper queue and, and things like that, which VoiceStream will, will do as well. Um, so that's that's great to know, and especially because it's an app that I already have. I don't know that I want VoiceStream reading me the Internal Revenue Service tax code, but yeah, could be interesting. Uh, on a side note, just while we're talking about this, I've actually stopped using VoiceStream because, like I said, I used it primarily for Instapaper stuff. I don't know if you know the uh, the new Instapaper also got a speech for uh, speech feature. It did. It did. Yes, mm. where it will read your articles to you. I am going to, have to look into that. Yeah, and in the pro feature, you or the the premium, whatever they call it, the premium version, you can even set up playlists for articles where it will read to you. Now, I think it's just the standard Siri voice right now. So you may get tired of Siri reading you your articles, but if you don't have any podcasts or if there's a particularly long piece, some of our friends in particular are known to write write longer form pieces. Um, you know, you can just set that to start off reading, and and it will go. Yeah, so I, I use VoiceStream, and I wouldn't use it for like academic articles because I don't think I'd be able to concentrate enough. But I like it when I have a good opinion piece in my in my pocket queue, and I'll I'll have it read that to me. And that's something you can listen to while you're driving around. So that's kind of where I use VoiceStream. And it, it is a great application. Thanks for reminding us. And I um, I know people will write in, so I'll just mention this off the bat. Um, in the accessibility features of iOS, there is an ability to turn on uh, text-to-speech so that when you highlight text, you do have an ability to have iOS read it to you. And you can do that from within the application. So if you highlight a big block of text somewhere, you can just have iOS read it to you. I just always found that a little bit fiddly and you know, voice is. stream. Yeah. I think it was 10 bucks and it's worth it for me to have it just go. I select an article and it just starts reading it. You can also buy additional voices. You can change the speed. You can, you know, you can do some interesting things with voice stream. Um, hey, let's talk about our second sponsor though. And that's Fujitsu, the, uh, the ultimate scanner for the Mac and iOS. Uh, Fujitsu has released a new scanner. It's the IX100. And it's really great. You know, I, I didn't realize how much better that portable scanner could get if I could remove the cord, but it is a lot better with it. So, so it's, you know, it's the, um, it's the skinny small scanner that can fit in your bag. Um, and it can now scan 300 dots per inch in 5.2 seconds. And the best part is it fits in your glove box, your briefcase, your backpack, and it weighs only 14 ounces. It is USB powered. You can plug it in via USB. You can even charge it via USB, but it also does wireless scanning. And it does that wireless scanning to your Mac or PC, or it can even scan to the iOS with the mobile device. It's got a rechargeable battery, so it can scan up to 260 pages on the go. And uh, in my day job, I am using the heck out of this thing because I'm going to meetings and I just yank my IX100 out of my bag and we're literally passing it around the table and pe people are pushing buttons and things are showing up on my Mac and it feels like you're living in the future. It's a great, uh, it's a great scanner. Um, they also have that fantastic Fujitsu software. It's got the ability to uh, scan uh uh, document multiple documents at the same time, what they call dual scan. It can do documents larger than legal size, can easily be scanned and easily stitched together. 
And it's also got uh, the ScanSnap software with the optical character recognition of a PDF. You can scan to a folder or an email or a third-party app like Evernote and Dropbox. Very powerful stuff. Now, the iX100 is is a great scanner if you're going to be portable. If you're going to be at your house and you want to have something bigger, you might want to get the was the iX500 is the one that sits on top of your desk or get the one that fits in your drawer. They've, they've got devices for whoever and whatever needs you have. But this new iX100 is definitely worth looking at. I always thought I wouldn't need a second scanner, but uh, to be honest with you, Katie, I'm carrying this thing with me around all the time now. So thanks, Fujitsu, for all of your support. Everybody go check them out. They're longtime supporters of making great Mac software for their hardware. And frankly, I think they're the best product on the market if you want to go paperless. So check it out. And thanks again, Fujitsu. All right. So we got some follow-up uh, just from some shows that we've done the last couple of uh I think really since our since our last feedback show and even some yeah. from our last feedback show. So yeah. we'll we'll try to cover some of those. Um Stephen mentioned in the last feedback show, he he asked, What software do we use for setting goals? And and you and I both had some different answers, but a couple of people wrote in and said, Well, you both had good answers, but I don't think you really answered Stephen's specific question in terms of what do we use for goal tracking and goal setting? Um, and we got some suggestions for Stephen. Uh, Josh wrote in with the suggestion of LifeTick software. Um, he said he's used LifeTick and had a really great experience with it. It's at LifeTick.com. We've got a link in the show notes. It lets you align your tasks and the goals with the core values that you decide on and then provides a nicely formatted graphs and charts to show you how you're doing. And so that might be something worth checking out. There's uh, no app for it, but apparently their website has a fairly nice mobile version. And then Terry wrote in with something called uh, Goalscape. And for several years, uh, he's been using that software uh, for Mac, and it's apparently also available for Windows. And additionally, uh, there's a, a web slash cloud version called Goalscape Connect. And it was created by an Olympic sailing captain uh, to help them hierarchically articulate and break down and monitor and achieve goals. So that's another good one to look at. I, I could get better at that stuff because I my current system of a text file I don't think is ideal. It doesn't kind of give me the, the nudges that I need to get better at goal tracking. And um, I'm going to be looking into these. Maybe we'll come back and talk about this again. Uh, and when we had the show with David Allen, thanks for everybody on the nice comments on the David Allen show. Uh, one of the things that he mentioned, an app he uses a lot called The Brain. And it used to be called The Personal Brain. And he, uh, Chris says this is a truly fantastic piece of software and he uses it all the time. Um, I put notes in my uh, OmniFocus to check out the brain during that show. I haven't got around to it yet, but uh, let us know if this is something you're using as well. And we had a pretty lengthy discussion on the last episode about security and how easy it was to reset an administrative password and kind of how scary it is. And we had Aaron, who actually has some experience with this, write in with or actually call in, whatever we're going to call it voice then <laughs> with a little more information. So let's hear from him. Hi, David and Katie Floyd. This is Aaron. I was just listening to your episode 218 with the live show. And there was some discussion about resetting a Mac account's admin password. I'm a previous Apple Care technician and can confirm that it is easy to reset an admin password for a Mac account. Uh, it's ridiculous the number of people that don't know that password and don't even understand the difference between that and an iCloud password, etc. 
So it is easy to reset the admin password using terminal in the recovery partition, and someone would have access to your files. But the keychain password is not reset with that procedure. The next time you log in, keychain access asks if you'd like to enter the old password to update the keychain, or if you'd like to create a new keychain. But there is no reset on a keychain password. Hopefully that helps some people understand the process. Definitely turn on File Vault and make sure to know that password. That's a great solution. Thanks for a good show. Thanks, Aaron, for sharing that. And I think the the moral of the story is everybody should be running File Vault. I mean, I, I've got this new fancy iMac that's sitting on my desk at home. And once I got things more or less figured out and set up, I turned on File Vault. I mean, it, it doesn't it just doesn't slow a Mac down. And I know somebody will write in and say that they can prove that it'll slow it down, but it doesn't noticeably slow it down. And it gives you so much more security. If someone breaks into my house and takes this thing with them, they aren't going to get anything out of it. Yeah, I I wonder why Apple hasn't just went, gone ahead and turned that on by default. I'm a little surprised that they haven't done that in one of the OS updates or with one of the machines that they've shipped by now. But I, th- I think the reason is because if you forget the password, and you go to reset it, you are truly screwed. And well, that's, that's kind of the, the, the point. And they don't want to deal with that. So they want people to voluntarily walk into it. But uh, for the listeners out there, I would guess that almost everybody listening to this has already done it. But if you haven't, uh, today when you're drinking your tea, just go into security, into system preferences, and click on File Vault. And more importantly, if you have done it, go to your, your spouse or your friend or your boss and do them a favor and uh, set them up with File Vault. And if you're doing it for a spouse or a friend or, or your boss, Open up a um, one password secure note and write down their password for them and keep it in your system because there may come a day where they need you to give it to them. Right. And Apple will actually let you store that information with them. And I guess you can choose whether or not that's something you want to do. I personally do not, but I I do for family members because I know I've got mine. And in fact, I've got theirs, too. But there may come a day when I'm not available to help them, and I want to make sure that someone is there to help them. Yeah, so. that's good advice. I, w- I don't do it for myself, but I do it for others as well. So yeah. good. I, I should also mention that Aaron uh, wrote back with a note after he sent in his audio comment and said he just wanted to point out as a side that without File Vault turned on, that anyone plugging a Mac in target disk mode has access to all the files for all those users. So um, even if you don't just reset the admin password, you know, through the uh, through the terminal, there, there's always been the the way that you just take a Mac, you pick it up, and you plug it into another Mac, and you can get access to all those files in target disk mode. It used to be FireWire disk mode, but now you can do it by Thunderbolt and, and other. Me- I don't know if you can do it by USB or not, but I know you can do it by Thunderbolt. But uh, yeah, that's that's scary too. So all the more reason to go ahead and turn and turn on a file vault. And for those of you who don't know, what target disk mode is is um, you you plug one Mac into another Mac. The, um, the we'll we'll call them the master and the slave Mac. The the slave Mac is the one that you want to access the files on, and you power that Mac on and you hold down the T key. Is that correct for target disk mode? I'd have to go check. Every time I do it, I go look because I don't do it very often anymore. Now I have two computers. Maybe I'll find more use for it. Right. And what will happen is the slave computer's uh, hard drive will mount on the master computer just as if it was an external hard drive. Now, of course, if you're encrypted with FileVault, it will be encrypted and you'll have to enter the, the passcode to unlock it. 
But it's yeah, a it's a way of getting out of Mac's files if let's say something is wrong and you can't boot that Mac or you just need to get to the files. Yeah. Well, everybody go side, set up uh, File Vault if you haven't. Make that your one thing for this show. If you haven't set up File Vault, set it up. Yeah. It's pretty easy to do. Just, you know, run a backup and then start start it one night. Sometimes it can take a couple hours depending on how much stuff you have. But but it all happens in the background. You don't even realize it's going on. Yeah. There you go. All right. Uh, we got some general tips, too. Jeremiah wrote in. Actually, he sent in an audio clip. So let's hear about Jeremiah talking about syncing screenshots. All right. Hey guys, this is Jeremiah from Ohio. Just wanted to share a quick tip. I'm a relatively new Mac user. I bought my first MacBook Pro last April. And when I first bought my MacBook Pro, uh, one of the things that I absolutely loved right off the bat was the ability to um, create screenshots so easily. However, I disliked that they saved to my desktop by default. Um, as a solution, I found an article that showed a simple terminal command that allowed me to change the default location, and so I save it to a screenshots folder in my pictures folder. Um, however, every time I needed a screenshot sent to my iPhone or iPad for whatever reason, I'd have to email it or iMessage it to myself. Simple enough, but still irritating. Um, then I started kicking myself because I wished that I'd thought of this sooner, but instead of saving screenshots to a screenshots folder in my pictures, I decided to change the save location to a screenshots folder in my Dropbox. Perfect. Now I can access all my recent screenshots from my iPhone or iPad by the time I take a screenshot and open up my Dropbox folder on my iPhone, it is there perfectly safe and sound. Uh, great solution, super easy to do, solves most of my problems. Hopefully sometime soon I can use this method and utilize iCloud Drive um, as it sort of uh, expands its features hopefully in the near future. Just wanted to share this quick tip. Um, thanks for all you guys do. Appreciate the show. Love it. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks, Jeremiah. It's always kind of cool to hear about new Mac users who are getting geeky with their Macs. That's that's one of our you know mission statement with the show is to take people that are are new to this stuff and turn them into power users. So that's that's great to hear. Some other uh, screenshot strategy. Uh, first of all, he talked about how easy it is to take screenshots, but didn't explain how you do it. If you don't know already, it's Command Shift Three uh, will take a screenshot of the entire screen. If you hit Command Shift Four, it gives you a little. Uh, target rectangle you can just drag it and take a screenshot and if you hit the space bar while you're doing that it will select the currently selected window and just take that shot i mean i use that stuff all the time when i'm putting these books together there's also some great third-party apps out there i'm not going to list them now but if you go in the app store and search screenshot you'll see some nice apps there that help you manage screenshots uh and there's also other ways to do what jeremiah was doing at Katie and I were just kind of putting notes in the outline as he was talking about Hazel and Dropbox. You want to talk about either one of those, Katie? Yeah. And, and first off, there are a bunch of third-party utilities that will let you change the format that you take a screenshot in. I believe the default that it comes with now, and this changes from time to time with the OS, is that it's a, is it still a PNG? Is that the default or did I change yeah, it's that? P, it's PNG. But now they put the date, uh, date timestamp in the name so they don't overwrite each other. That used to be a problem. Oh, okay. 
Um, so screenshots are, are saved as PNGs. If you use the Secrets app, which is a which is a fun one, uh, that's it's made by the original people who made your beloved Quicksilver, I believe. Yeah, it is uh, same guy. Yeah, you can you can use that, or you can use some of these third party system utilities like Onyx or Cocktail to change if if you prefer it not to be a PNG. I kind of like being a PNG because you know then you've got you know background. Don't worry about the background issues. So you can you can change the format of the screenshot, and that that's an option. Um, if you don't like them all accumulating on your desktop, if you run Hazel, you can set up a Hazel rule. That's a really easy one to rename them and move them to another folder, or perhaps do that after some period of time. You know, maybe if you haven't touched them in five minutes, to rename them and put them somewhere. That's fine. Uh, Dropbox, if you've got an up-to-date version of Dropbox, also has a feature um, where it will pull in screenshots that you take because it sees that that's something that that people do regularly. And so Dropbox will automatically pull in screenshots yeah. if, if configured. Yeah. The other day I, t- I had to take a screenshot uh, on my phone that I wanted to put on the blog. And, you know, because iOS 8, we're all still exploring, you know, the airdrop feature. Right. That works pretty pretty nicely so i was on my phone i hit air, airdrop my imac shows up and it just drops right into the download button the download folder on my imac and uh, all those days of emailing yourself pictures or saving it to dropbox or doing something else silly to get it from one device to the other are over it's great yeah that sure um, uh, um one of the other things that you want to look at the default um, the default nature of the screenshots that it that are taken with iOS with the built-in tools um, is it puts a shadow around it. So if you do that spacebar trick I was talking about and you take a screenshot of a window, it puts a little like drop shadow around it. And you may not want that if you're going to use it in a book or on your blog site or in some other place. Uh, there's a terminal command to remove that as well. And I always have to rem- remember to do that whenever I set up a new Mac. And you could also solve that problem in secrets as well. So that's another uh, screenshotting tip. Uh, we also heard from John, who's uh, about using tags in one password. In show 220, we mentioned uh, two situations easily solved by our favorite apps, uh, one password and downloading PDF statements. And Katie said she creates a task in OmniFocus when she receives an email notification of a new credit card or utility company statement each month. Um, he downloads his monthly statements twice per month and on the second and fourth Saturdays of the month. Since his credit card statement comes available on the fifth of the month, he tags that one password card with a tag. Uh, and in quotes, I put download one with no space to represent the first download session of the month. And then his cell phone bill comes around the 15th and he tag- tags that with download two for the second download session. And um, then he has four one K statements and, and he continues and he says, well, you see where this is going um, and the things that he creates recurring tasks for each of these download sessions. Uh, then when it comes time to download the session, he opens one password and filters to the appropriate tags and they can quickly visit each site and download the statements. So the long story short, um, he uses tags and one password to group the um, the payment sessions he's doing. And then he can just jump to that tag and get to the websites. I thought that was clever. That's a really good. I, that's a really good idea. I, I need to start using tags and in, in apps like One Password more aggressively, and that's a really good way to do it. To to grab, you know, these are all the things that I do this time of year or this time of the month. You know, I always download these particular statements, and that would, and then boom, you have all of those websites right there at your disposal. He was yeah, also so I, mentioning I'd always that been using he, tags to. 
Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I'd yeah. always been using tags in 1Password to group categories like utilities together or something like that. And this is using tags as kind of like almost like a context trigger or a, you know, a calendar trigger. And why not? Because tags, you can use multiple tags for multiple for the same item. Smart. Um, he also said that another good use for it is that he tags online accounts with the last four digits of the credit card associated with that account. So, for example, if he uses a particular card to pay his Amazon or his Verizon bill or or whatever, he'll tag it with the last four digits of that card. And, um, you know, if that card expires or if that card gets compromised and has to be reissued, <laughs> that happens, Um you you can also filter in one password by that tag, and then you immediately know what websites you have to go update your, your credit card for. I think that was the best tip of the month from John. I mean, I because I have one credit card, and now I have the fourth number on that card this year. I know. I got hit with the Target thing. I got hit with the Home Depot thing, and then somebody was buying gas in Spain with my credit card. So I keep getting these new cards, and I've got a little number sheet at this point of my recurring billings. But I didn't. This this is actually, I think, more clever. I'm gonna I'm gonna implement this today. Yeah, because it's like I've got my one two three four card is at Amazon, and my five six seven eight card I use at you know the utility company or wh- whatever. Yeah. Boom. That's a great uh, idea. We also heard from uh, so. Quentin wrote uh, in and sent an audio comment about email. And I thought there were some smart things in here. Why don't we play that one? Okay. Hello, David and Katie. This is Quentin Stafford Fraser from Cambridge in England. I had a couple of tips related to email today. One of them is to do with um, text expander or keyboard shortcuts. Now, this is very, very obvious, but it surprises me how many people don't seem to think of this. One of the most common things that most of us type is our email address. And it's also a rather awkward thing to type because it often involves letters and numbers and punctuation and so on. So it's a really good idea to turn your email addresses, you may have several of them, into keyboard shortcuts. So I'm fortunate I've got an unusual first name, so um, I can use Q as the first character of my shortcuts. So I have QGO, for example, for Quentin's email at Google, and QFM for Quentin's email at Fastmail, and so on. And I can type these very quickly, and they turn into my full email address. Now, you can, of course, use Text Expander for this, but these are so simple, these expansions, that actually you can use the built-in keyboard expansion, which on a Mac is under um, System Preferences Keyboard Text, and on an iOS device you can find under Settings General Keyboard Shortcuts. And the nice thing about this, particularly on mobile devices, is that it works in all of the Apple apps, like Safari, for example, as well as the ones that have built-in text expander support. And since your email address is increasingly your user ID on uh, websites and so on, and particularly they can be hard to type on a mobile keyboard, I find this really useful The second tip is something you can do with Apple Mail, but I find it much easier with something like MailMate. In the past, when I looked at an incoming mail and I saw that it would need further attention, or even just more careful reading, I would usually just mark it as unread and come back to it later, and it would be there amongst my unread messages. But the problem with this is that it's very easy 
when I'm skimming through messages on my phone while I'm walking the dog, for example, to mark things as read accidentally, and then they would get lost. I could move them to another folder, or I could transfer them to OmniFocus, but those are quite a few clicks on a phone while you're walking along, and they often aren't the kind of thing that I would use my OmniFocus lists for anyway. Now, the nice thing about MailMate is that you can set up quite complex smart mailboxes, much more complex than you can in Apple Mail. So I have one called Inbox Unread or Flagged, which basically takes all of my inboxes, any messages that are either unread or flagged or both, and, um, and puts them in one smart mailbox. So now I flag the messages that I need to come back to, something that's very easy to do on any device, really, or any email program. And on MailMate, you can rearrange the order of these folders so you can put it right at the top. And so for me, it's really replaced my inbox. Um, my list of messages which are either unread or flagged is essentially the list of things I need to deal with. And I find that really, really useful. Hope that's helpful to someone else. Thanks very much for a great show. Very cool. You know, David, we, we really should look at revisiting email. In fact, we are Katie Floyd. I've uh, I've been thinking a lot about email lately because it's uh, still the bane of my existence, and I am uh, I'm working on an outline. And our next show will be about email. So yeah, this you- this was the topic that I talked about at at Milo Fest, and you know, lawyers never have trouble with email ever. Yeah, of course not. So, so uh, they were very eager about it too. So I've got a lot to say on this topic as well. Good, good. I'm looking forward to covering it again. Uh, let's talk about a sponsor before we get, we've got some more comments I wanted to bring in, but let's bring in our next sponsor. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about our next sponsor for this episode. And that is Gazelle. Uh, Gazelle is the fast and simple way to sell your used gadgets. David, I know that you shipped a phone off to Gazelle recently. I've shipped phones off to Gazelle as well. And you can find out what your used iPhone, your used iPad and your other products are worth over at gazelle.com. My family has just recently gotten into Gazelle and they think it's the greatest thing. They are all switching over from AT&T to Verizon this, this time around. They're, they're all out of contract and are switching their, their whole family plan over. And um, my, my dad just has the greatest time going with telling every family member, go over to Gazelle, see what you can get for your phone. See, can you go over there? Make sure you plug in Katie's podcast. That's what he tells everybody. And so he's, he, maybe he's, come on and be our, our next spokesperson for Gazelle. But uh, it, it is so easy. It's so easy. Even my dad can do it. You can say that. Uh, that if you're thinking about getting a new iPhone or a new iPad, uh, Gazelle wants to buy your used iPhone or iPad for cash. And all you do is you go on their website and you tell them what you've got. You click on your iPhone. You click on your iPad. Um, you tell them, is it uh, what size it is? What version it is? Is it AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, T-Mobile, uh, one of the other carriers, whatever it is. Tell them what kind of condition it is, new, used. They'll even buy broken iPhones and iPads. And then they will give you a risk-free offer. You can lock it in for 30 days. They'll even send you a box. You ship your gadgets off to them, free shipping. They pay for everything. And then you get a check or PayPal. Or you can even get an Amazon gift card and get an extra 5% back when you go that way. So go to gazelle.com. That's G-A-Z-E-L-L-E.com. And why don't you just check it out and see what your iPhone or iPad is worth and lock in your price. And you may just decide that you need a new iPhone or iPad once you see. So, hey, David, you ever wonder what Gazelle does with all their used iPhones and iPads? Yeah. What do they do with them, Katie Floyd? Well, you can now buy a used iPhone or iPad. Uh, from Gazelle. 
So you may want to check that out as well. That may be a good way to get a, a quality used device if, if you want to as yeah, well. Yeah, if you want to save some money. And uh, they have, I guess it's kind of like certified pre-owned. You know, it's almost like a like if you're going to get a luxury car, they have the pre-owned devices. Gazelle certifies these and sells them to you. I we I had a similar experience. We went to a, a friend's house and she had, I was getting a screwdriver to fix something in her house and she has this utility drawer. And I look and there's like an iPad and like three phones in there. I'm like, what are you doing with this stuff? And she says, well, I don't know what to do with it. So she, uh, I told her about Gazelle. She sent me an email and she, she made $600 on stuff that was sitting in her drawer. Wow. And then I said, I said, you did like list the Mac power users podcasts. Right. And she says, Oh, I forgot to. No. Oh. Like, Come on, man. I yes, got you $600. Listen. Yeah. So, yeah. um, yeah, the Gazelle certified means you get a couple of things. You get a great deal on gently used phones because it's geeks like us that send our phones into Gazelle and you know how fanatic we are about taking care of them. Uh, there's no contracts, no strings attached. You don't have to renew your contacts. And all of these phones, uh, or iPads or whatever it is you decide to buy from them come with a 30 point quality inspection and a 30 day risk free return. So you can buy things there from, AT&T, Sprint, T-Mobile, or completely unlocked. So if you're not quite out of contract and you want to get a phone on a different carrier, or if you had something happen to your phone and you need to pick up a different one, um, you can go check that out. So um, gazelle.com, G-A-Z-E-L-L-E.com. And thanks to them for their support of the show. So uh, Richard sent in an audio comment about uh, creating repeat reminders in OmniFocus that I thought was pretty helpful. Let's hear from Richard. Okay. Hi, Casey and David. This is Richard from Queensland, Australia. After listening to one of your recent episodes on task management, I thought I'd share a workflow with you. I use OmniFocus for my day-to-day tasks, and I love it to death, as I know Casey and yourself does. The problem is that I'm a terrible scatterbrain, and when a task becomes due and the reminder surfaces, sometimes I can become distracted and forget about the reminder. If this task is super important, that can present a real problem to me. My solution to this was to create a workflow involving OmniFocus, Keyboard Maestro, and Due App. Essentially, Keyboard Maestro copies the title and due date to Due App, and now I'm reminded every minute of this important task until I take action on it. I created a movie of this process on YouTube, along with the macro in the description. Love your work, and I hope your listeners thought this was helpful. I love it when listeners create content and put it on the internet to help our listeners out. Yeah, and I have put a link to that YouTube video in the show notes. I will tell you, though, creating a repeating task every minute, that, man, that better be something pretty darn important. Yeah, well, and and the that's the thing about the Do app in iOS is it does not stop. It does not quit. It just keeps reminding you it does not, you know, and, um, and if you need that, that's the application to do that in. Um, but, you know, that makes sense. You know, another trick with repeating reminders is, and this is kind of a different sense of the word repeating. If you're going to have something that comes up again in two weeks, uh, quite often when I create one of those items, I don't have time to set up the formula to have it repeat. Um, and I will just put a task like prepare show notes and I'll put slash repeat two weeks. And then the first time I complete that, I will take the time and OmniFocus to set up the repeating formula. So that's a good way to capture that. Cause if I don't put it in the name, I'll check it off and forget to set up the repeating. 
Uh, you want to hear from Jared? Jared ha- has an audio comment about restoring uh, versus starting from scratch. Yeah, I. Uh, this is our buddy Jared, and hi, Jared. Thank you so much. And um, Jared just wants to note there's there's a little bit of noise in the background of this, but his content is good. So Jared apologizes in advance, but uh, he's got some good stuff to say here. So here's Jared. Hey, David and Katie Floyd. This is uh, this is Jared in Monterey. Hey, I was just listening to your iOS 8 show, and uh, you guys are having a discussion about restoring from a backup or maybe starting from scratch with uh, iPhone 6 and iPhone 6 Plus coming out. And that's a big debate among a lot of folks. You know, a lot of times people do really like to start from scratch, but there's, there's a downside to that, and that's if you've been playing a game, you've worked your way up through a bunch of levels in that game maybe doesn't sync with iCloud or you have other apps that have lots of documents or files within them and you run the risk of losing those because you choose not to restore from your backup. Well, I found a pretty awesome solution to that uh, through a third-party app. And that app is called iMazing. It's for the Mac. I think it's like $30. They offer you a 14-day trial. And what you can do is you can connect a phone or any iOS device and you can pull an app and the data associated with that app off of or copy it from your iOS device to your Mac. And then you can connect your new phone or another iOS device and you can copy that app and its data from your Mac onto the new iOS device. And it completely restores the data that's associated so, you know, if you're 17 layers deep in Tiny Wings or, what a, you know, your game of choice, you don't lose that progress as you go. So if you really want to start from scratch and start with a clean install of the operating system on a brand new device, you can do that. And you can just back up those individual apps and their content to your Mac and then restore that content specifically back onto your iOS device when you're all said and done. There are quite a other few features that are really neat as part of this iMazing app. You can completely clone a device from one to another, and you can do that without integrating or, or connecting with iTunes. So when you have that dilemma of, well, my iPhone's been connected to another computer for a long time, and if I connect it to a different computer, it's going to want to erase my phone to start syncing with that one. Well, this app iMazing completely bypasses that feature. So pretty awesome. Anyway, thanks so much. You guys love the show and uh, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. In addition to having great content, Jared also pilots a biplane. So (laughs) I think he took that while he was buzzing over like crop dusting or something. Right. Right. Good tips, though. Um, Brian wrote in with a question uh, about rolling your own backup service. And he says after having a drill bro uh, power outage, he's been thinking a lot about his offsite backup. And he wanted to be able to recover everything from crash plan, but it took a while to redownload two terabytes of data. So he asked, could I use a combination of Drobo and transporter sync or Pogo plug or something to give a complete mirror of all his data? Yeah, I, uh, I followed up a little bit with Brian so I, so I can add a little more to this. Um, Brian apparently had a Drobo 5N and he had a power surge at his house and lost the data because he lost the unit. And apparently he was 
He has since gotten that replaced. I don't know if he had DroboCare or insurance or, or what the deal was. But fortunately, his, his data was backed up on CrashPlan, so he didn't actually lose any data. So so good on you, Brian, for that. But he had like two plus terabytes of data that was backed up to CrashPlan. And so to re-download more than two terabytes of data takes a long time. Um, now, many of these cloud services will ship you a hard drive, and you know you can you can both either seed your your backup to a cloud service by shipping them a hard drive, or they'll FedEx you a hard drive, and that will be one method of, of you to get your data back. But usually, that can be a couple hundred bucks to to have them ship you a hard drive. So you've kind of got to weigh, okay, well, how important is it that I have this hard drive, or, or or can I spend a couple of weeks, or depending on your amount of your data, maybe even longer than that, re-downloading this. Um, and so Brian was wondering, what what can I do to make my own offsite backup solution? Can I plug a Drobo into a transporter? Can I use a Pogo plug? Can, you know, can I can I use Crash Plans backup to a friend feature? Because I think the way that I understand it, and going back and forth with Brian a little bit, is he's he's willing to put some money out up front, but he's trying to avoid you know kind of the the reoccurring costs associated with the backup solution. Yeah, and it's it's really in flux right now because everybody seems to be delivering new options. I mean, Dropbox gives you a lot more space than it used to, and now we have things like the transporter that you can control it yourself. Um, I, I thought maybe the way to handle this would be just to kind of talk a little bit about where you and I are currently with backup solutions. And I know that you and I are weirdos and we back up way too much, but um, why don't we kind of share that a little bit? Is that something you're willing to do? Oh yeah, I can, I can certainly do that. Um, one of, one of the things that I do is I use, um, Backblaze for, for all of my offsite and, um, that gives me the ability to to put all of the stuff from my computer offsite as well as any direct attached storage offsite. Now it does not give me the ability to back up my my Drobo directly offsite with Backblaze because that's a network attached storage device. So that's what I'm using. But because I back up my Drobo locally using Carbon Copy Cloner to a hard drive that is physically connected to my Mac then that then gets backed up to Backblaze. So the content that's also on my Drobo does get backed up to my Mac. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And, and so, and for my offsite solution, I like you, in fact, one of the nice things about having this iMac sitting on my desk now is I have my Drobo third generation connected directly to it. And for my $5 a month Backblaze account, uh, I'm getting, you know, a lot of data backed up to the backblaze. It's, it's good. I'm sure I'm going to probably get a message from my cable provider at some point because I'm going to be uploading like a crazy man for a while. Um, but I also use my transporter and I've got a transporter, um, at a relative's house with a one terabyte drive in it. And that's where the really, you know, one terabyte is enough for most people and like all of the family photos, all the family video. Um, all of my record, you know, PDFs and, you know, kind of my paperless dump, like the real stuff that I really, really need is there and it's always there and it's always updated and, th- and that's down the street. So, you know, it, it's really quite nice. And so I, I think with these new solutions, you've got a, a lot of ability to get your data offsite reliably and quickly. And if you don't have, if you've been waiting to put that piece into place, now is the time to do it. 
Yeah. Um, Crash Plan does give you an option to back up to a buddy. And, and I did that for a long time with my family members is I had Crash Plan running on their computers and then I had Crash Plan running on my Mac Mini and then I had my Drobo set as the de- destination. And so then I had all my family members basically backing up to my Mac Mini, although they were using the Drobo as the physical storage device. And so all my family members were backing up to me as as their storage. But, you know, their, their costs, despite the fact that it's, it's quote unquote free because I'm not paying crash plan for it, um, there are still costs associated with that. It was a lot of time and effort for me to manage it because something would happen. I'd have to reset the network. I'd have to get the, the mini and the, every time I'd restart the mini, I'd have to get that back up in sync with crash plan and um, the Drobo. If I restarted the Drobo, I'd have to get that back up in sync. And I would have to do all of these things to make sure that it would work. So it was an administrative cost for me. I basically became the system administrator for all of these people's backups. Um, and it was a, it was a time cost related to that as well. Um, transporter is a great solution. I've got a transporter here and I've got a transporter offsite, but again, the transporter is only going to replicate to it what you have. I mean, maybe a pogo plug would work. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I, I, I think there's some interesting things that are going to be coming out in the space in, in the, in the near future. I know there's some really smart people working on this. I tell you the solution though, David, that, that I have come up with is, Despite the fact that there is a recurring cost associated with these online backup solutions, but they're pretty cheap. I mean, the average cost is about five bucks a month, whether you do crash plan or whether you do backblaze. The the you know forty to sixty bucks a year that you spend on one of these services to just let them take care of it is usually worth it in terms of my time and not having to manage it. I mean. How much money are you going to have to spend to buy hard drives, to buy network attached storage, to to get this set up somewhere else, to manage it, to maintain it, to keep it working? I mean, just how much is your time worth at some point? Yeah, well, I, so, I think the answer is is several of these things. You don't need to pick one. And um, for me, the the combination, of the offsite plus transporter is really I'm really happy with it because I feel like I have complete control of my backups and and everything I have is backed up there amongst other places. I didn't even mention the stuff I'm doing at the house to have extra backups of drives here and closets and whatever. Um but the uh and um because <laughs> we're running long I don't want to get into that. But it makes a lot of sense to have a local backup as well. But but putting this stuff out to off site now is very practical. When we first started recording the show and started talking about backup, I used to tell people not to do it because it didn't make sense. But with bandwidth caps now uh, being raised for these services uh, and for the price that's come down, why not set it up? And if it takes you a month to get the first backup done, so be it. I mean, in a month, you're going to have everything off site. Um, anyway, I think we've probably talked about enough about that. I want to talk about uh, the family sharing fiasco that I'm going through in my house. And uh, we also have some some picks of the month stuff that we've been new stuff we've been playing with. Uh, before we do that, though, I want to talk about our last sponsor, which is appropriately the transporter. So what is a transporter? It's um, a storage device that lets you create your own private cloud for syncing, accessing and protecting and sharing your data. Uh, they've got various models, but uh, the one I have is like a little puck with a little 
kind of riser in it that I can put my own hard drive. So I was able to upgrade it, for instance, the one I had offsite to a terabyte recently. And it's better than other cloud solutions because it's 100% under your own control where your files are stored and who has access to them. It's all under your control. Um, if you like Dropbox and you're going to love the transporter because it's out of the box setup like Dropbox, you take it out, you plug it in, and then you just plug it into your network. With Transporter 2.0, you can create an account uh, where you create a folder on your Mac to hold all the documents you want to sync between the computers. And these automatically start syncing with your transporter. So it just happens automatically. The setup is the same as creating a new Dropbox account. You can drag and drop folders to sync and share, or any folder under the top level connected data folder will be shared and synced. So you can create new folders or drag existing ones in, and they're all automatically synced for you. It's very reassuring to know this is happening. Um, you can also share a folder um, or a file with a single mouse click. You select on the folder to share with others, right-click the mouse, and then you've got a sharing. Um, you can share by emailing a link. So if you right-click the mouse, you can send it. And once again, all of this stuff is on storage that you control. Uh, the email recipient can just click on it, the link, and download the file, even if they're not a transporter owner or somebody in the transporter system. There's additional features, though, that you're not going to find with Dropbox, like total privacy. Only you control who has access to the files on Transporter. It's not some third party holding your data. It's you. So like my legal stuff, I can't share the stuff with a Dropbox link. I can't put it up there, but I can put it on my Transporter and feel very comfortable with it. We've heard from a lot of physician listeners who also are worried about HIPAA requirements, and they're using Transporters to use data um, control and sharing. It's never stored on a server where it's backed up. Uh, when you erase a file, all copies are erased. You know, it just, it's your control. Um, you can also have special folders that works uh, with the things you do. So uh, Dropbox is everything you need to be placed in the Dropbox folder with Transporter. You can select the special folder like documents, music, pictures, movies for syncing and sharing, and it works the way you do. Um, it also has network storage, uh, so you can put you can store files in bulk, providing network access without taking up expensive storage space on portable devices. And the f the best part for me is the cost. Once you get in, you just buy in the device. Right now, a one terabyte transporter costs two hundred and forty nine dollars. There's no annual fees. You don't have to renew every year. It's just there. And if you run out of space on the one terabyte drive, take it out and put a two terabyte drive, and you're set. So. Uh, you've got all that done, plus more. You can upload images from your iOS camera at full resolution if you're on vacation. Um, it just gives you your own private cloud storage, and they have a special deal for our listeners. So you can save 10% on your purchase, up to $35 on any transporter model, by using the code MPU10. That's MPU10 with no space when you buy it at filetransporterstore.com. Uh, transporters come in 500 gigabyte, one terabyte, and two terabyte capacities. Uh, listeners who want to provide their own USB drive should buy a transporter sync, which is the model. It looks like the hockey puck without the part on top, and you can just attach it to an existing USB drive. And it provides the same functionality and lets you select which capacity and brand to drive. Uh, you can use the uh, you can save twenty dollars on that one when you buy it at filetransporter.com using the code MPU20 with no space. So check it out. Um, I love my transporter. Like Katie, I have two of them. I've got one at the house and one off site, and it gives me a lot of um, uh, you know it, it gives me a lot of reassurance to know that I've got my data in two places and I have complete control. 
Thanks, Transporter, for supporting the show. And everybody, go get yourself a Transporter at FileTransporterStore.com. So, David, how's family sharing working out for you? Um, you know, it's 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 not terrible. It doesn't completely not work. That's the problem. That it, it solves a problem, <laughs> but it it brings with it a lot of pain and suffering. And I think it's partly because they haven't got all the kinks worked out, and they should have, in my opinion. But anyway, um, so I've been talking about this on our show now, ongoing for a couple months because. I was really looking forward to family sharing, which is a, a promise feature with iOS 8, where we can, you know, we've got this family. My kids are growing up on me, despite my best wishes, and they're getting more independent, and we're having more devices in the house. Now, everybody has a Mac. Now, we have two iMacs in our house, and we've got iPhones and iPads, and with you know, the Apple system, whatever, whatever their licensing requirements were when they started buying content and selling things in iTunes is you can only have 10 devices on an account, which sounds crazy. Like who's ever going to have 10 devices? Well, if you have four people, you're going to hit 10 devices pretty quickly. So we've had this weird thing in our house for a long time that uh, people end up bumping each other off of the list you know, because they want to download something and it's just complete mayhem in terms of managing our iTunes account. And also when you start uh, taking a device off the iTunes and putting it on pretty soon, I, Apple starts thinking that you're trying to, you know, use multiple accounts and then you start getting your devices locked. It's just, it's crazy. So that that's the big problem at my house right now. And I thought, well, if I get family sharing, that's going to solve the problem because everybody will have a 10 device limit per person. And we're going to have no problem with that. I mean, none of us have that many devices. And, um, when I first tried it, it didn't work. And then I, I researched it more and I realized that when you set it up, um, the way you do it is first you, you have like a family manager. And in my case, we've got this shared iTunes account that we've had for years. And then I have my own iCloud identity, which is separate. So on my device, I've got the shared, the family shared account, which has all the stuff we bought in it. And then I've got my iCloud account for my email and calendar and whatnot. So I set that up. And then when I go to my daughter or my wife, I set up them with family sharing and they don't log in to that shared account anymore. They log in for purchases and iCloud managing all with one account, which is really nice for them. So they just have one account now. Um, so that works. And if I do that, each one of them is now off of the 10 device limit of the traditional family account that we were sharing. And then they're on their own account. So that problem is solved. That problem, that solution, however, comes with a cost. I've been talking a long time. You have any questions so far? No, I got them. Okay. So it works. It okay. works that works out. Okay. And that's the problem. So that, that uh, solves that problem for me. But, but what's the sudden, cost? It's, it's just a big mess. So, um, Switching the buy account is confusing for the family. So my, my wife and daughter, they're not geeky like me. And when you go in to download something, um, they're going to see that they don't have anything in their accounts, you know, other than the few items we bought as we were testing to make sure this all worked. And so I'm getting these people saying, dad, I understand all, you know, I can't find any of our music, blah, blah, blah. So, um, so then you've got to show them you go in, it, there's like a selection menu in the music store or the app store or whichever store you're in the iBook store. And you've got to select on, you know, me and then go in there to download that stuff. And that that's okay. I understand 
that there's got to be a way to do that. It doesn't just automatically show you everything in all the combined accounts, although that would be kind of nice if it did. Um, so that that's a little confusing, and everybody's starting to wrap their minds around it. So, so far, I'm doing okay with that, and that would be that would be okay if that was the only problem. But then there's more. There's a bug right now with app updates. So even just before the show started, the people that are in the family sharing, um, not the manager like me, but the people who are like kind of members of it, um, there's a problem with updating apps. Not all of them. And as I understand it, developers need to do something in their app to make sure that it works. And I and so my wife is having this big problem where apps are showing up for updates, but they won't actually update. And then she looks at me with that look, you know? And so then I got to, yeah, I got to figure that out. And it's really, it's, there's a bug in it somewhere. And so that's a problem. And then we've got the problem with my daughter because the iPhone shuffle in the house, her phone has been now owned by two or three people over the last month or so. So, um, they iTunes will not let me disassociate her phone from the family shared account and into her own for another like 70 days, or they're going to like lock it up or do something dreadful. And then I'm going to have to get on the phone with somebody. Um, and we lose iTunes match, which is something that once again, I'm probably okay with that. Um, but it has been a big hassle, frankly, trying to make all this work and it's still not working entirely right. Um, uh, it is solving that one problem I started this conversation with, but it certainly doesn't feel as graceful as I would have liked it to feel. Well, it, it, it just seems like this came out half-baked. Not uh, it's, It seems like it's a good idea in theory, but it's not well thought out and it's certainly not well executed. Well, it's a great idea and necessary, but we need, you know, and frankly, there's no easy uh, online guide from Apple, sh- you know, showing you how to do this. Uh, they say, just sign up and push the button and you're all good. But what they need to do is kind of have a walkthrough with a family of three or four, where you show how you set up the various devices and what account settings you need to use. Because I had to kind of just fake it until I figured it out. And I write books on this stuff and do a podcast on it. Yeah. All right. Well, are you going to keep us updated? Or are you going to keep it turned on? Are you going to give up on it? Or No, I'm going to keep it. I, I need to at this point. I need to keep it going. Okay. Because so, I, you know, we need the, the 10 device limit thing is a problem. All my kids agree that they're very happy that now their iPads can all actually connect to iTunes. And I mean, it solves the problem, like I said, but boy, it's not really, um, it's not ideal. Hopefully it'll get better. I'm sure it will. That's something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I have a choice at this point. I've gone too far. Um, I, I may have to end up buying an iTunes match account for my wife too. My kids seem like they're okay without it. But once again, I, I'm I'm okay with that stuff. I'm okay with the fact that you have to buy, rebuy in-app purchases. Um, you know, I, I don't mind developers making a little bit of money if multiple people are using their apps. Uh, but just just the underlying logistics of it, it just like you said it's half baked it's not it doesn't seem like it's entirely ready for prime time yet okay i thought it was just a rant i didn't really do any good for our listeners with that well i i think maybe if somebody was on the edge of thinking maybe i'll turn this on maybe i won't maybe you just convince them not to yeah but it can work. So let me know what your experiences are with it. This will probably be an ongoing thing for a little while until it gets sorted out. Okay. 
Um, we had a lot of people writing in, uh, several, asking about, hey, you know, what do you, what are your essential apps when you get a new Mac? Um, so we have a whole section of the outline on that. That's not going to work today, though. We're out of time. Uh, well, maybe we'll do another show on it or, or push it out to next month. But. Well, sounds like a plan. Yeah, but we do have, um, I like talking about new stuff at the end of these shows. Um, and I've been talking about my new stuff most of the show. <laughs> I got this new iMac that I love. I also, though, uh, following up on my threat, I ordered an Evernote pin. Oh, yeah. Evernote drop pin. Yeah. So I've got it. I've been using it for a while. Uh, I still think that, you know, these pins, I'm just not much of an artist. So, you know, I'm not, I think these are kind of lost on me. But as I said, I destroyed my old drop pin. So I bought this new one and it's great for highlighting things in PDF pin, which is what, you know, 90% of what I do with one of these pins is. So it's, it's a nice pin, but. I don't really have anything real exciting to say about it. So you're it's not changing my life. You're not using it for handwriting. Not really. I yeah. played with it a little bit and just my handwriting is so terrible on paper and you, and it, it's like twice as bad on a touchscreen iPad. All right. Well, I'm, I'm glad that I was not the only one who had that problem. Cause yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly with that. I am using it quite a bit for highlighting PDFs, but eh, I'm, I'm never going to be able to take notes notes with this thing and unless my handwriting gets a whole lot better or the technology here gets a whole lot better. So we'll see. So my new thing that I've been using recently is I've been using a very desk. Have you heard of those? No. Okay. So a very desk, it's over at uh, verydesk.com. We'll, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, I was... You know, just with the studying and the reading and all of the stuff that I've been doing, I, I, we're lawyers. We do a lot of desk work. We, we spend a lot of time sitting anyway. But I was finding that I especially was spending a lot more time sitting than I normally do. And I was really not having the time to go to the gym. I used to go to the gym four or five days a week, and I was slacking off on that. And just my my body was, was starting to say, well, what are you doing? And so I thought, well, maybe I could make a small improvement by trying to stand at work and, you know, at least get a little bit better at that. And I, I started looking at standing desk solutions. And I had a couple of requirements just because of the way that my my physical office is set up at work. It One is it, it had to be something that looked reasonable because I meet with clients in my office. Uh, two is it had to work with my existing desk setup because I was not getting new furniture. Um, and three is it had to be able to support my Mac. And the Veridesk seems to meet all of those requirements. I got the uh, Veridesk Single Plus because I just have the Mac Mini and a single monitor. It's uh, 325 and then shipping runs another 50 bucks or so. So it's about 375 out the door shipped into you. And I've been, I've been using it for a couple of weeks now. I don't have, um, I, I don't know, David, I don't know if I'm going to end up keeping it or not. It it does exactly what it says it does. It's a very well be built uh, piece of equipment. It is solid. It it holds my thing steadily. I even feel like I can lean on it a little bit, and it's not going to go anywhere. Um, probably my biggest piece of disappointment with it is um, it it is just really really big and really really bulky, which I, is kind of a catch twenty two because it has to be in in order to be so solid and. Um, as a result, it's just really off-putting in my office, and especially when I have it extended, it takes up a huge amount of, of physical space 
in my office. So where I would normally be sitting at a desk with my chair scooted in, I'm now stepped back, you know, almost three or four feet because of the way that the, the desk extends. It doesn't extend straight up. It extends straight up and out. So uh, really good idea. I'm I'm kind of on the edge of whether I'm going to keep it or, or send it back because I just I don't know that it's workable in my office environment. Yeah, and it looks kind of hokey. I'm looking at the website. I'm not sure I would want that in my desk in my office. Right. So I mean, if I've, you want a sit stand desk, you know they have some nice ones out there. They're kind of expensive, but they're you know they're pretty nice. Well, and I think that may have been my problem is I. I was trying to do this with my existing furniture because I really needed to keep the existing furniture I had in my office. And I simply may not be able to do that with my existing furniture. I may need to get all new furniture for my office. Yeah. I am. Um, I got a couple of years ago at my house, they had a deal at next desk, which is one of those ones that is it's, it's actually built to be a sit stand desk. And I have one at my house. I use it all the time. And it's it's really quite nice. And I also know that Kia started uh, selling an, a sit stand desk, which I'm sure would be much more economical. But I haven't I haven't actually used one. But you know, it's a Kia. They usually do a pretty good job. Um, so those things are out there. It means it comes in pieces. Yeah, it probably does. <laughs> and it has exactly the right number of screws in the box, not a single one more. Um, but uh, but these things that you attach to the top of a desk, like a very desk. I, it just feels to me kind of hokey. I'm not sure I'd want that in my office, but um, but I, I get where you're coming from. It is nice being able to sit and stand. Yeah, and I like that. I, well, everybody, I move it from time to time, but yeah, I yeah. just I don't know that it's going to work long term. Yeah. Um, when we had Serenity Caldwell on the show, she had done something like that as well. I don't remember what product she had used, but she had set up like a corner standing desk as well to go back and listen to that one. Um, well, everybody, we made it through another live show. We did. We did make it through another live show. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, you can find links to everything that we talked about in this episode at our website at MacPowerUsers.com or at 5x5.tv slash MPU. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. The show is at MacPowerUsers. I'm at Katie Floyd, or David is at Mark Sparky. Um, yeah, if, and if you want to send us direct feedback, send us to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. And thank you to all of our sponsors today, Lynda.com, Fujitsu, Gazelle, and Transporter. And we will see you all next week. Bye.